It's your favorite head healer. It's your favorite up the street, around the corner, around the way, hood priestess. It's your favorite auntie, captain, goddess, lady, speech in the place to be. And I want to welcome you to the whore pod. <laughs> Welcome to Horror Pod. See, when I was little, sometimes my parents would be in the background throwing dishes or smacking each other. And part of my survival in that was using the dish as a beat, using the screaming as my background singers to my poems. I didn't have any idea what a good writer was or wasn't, and I didn't really care about good or bad as far as writing. What I cared about was healing myself. And I didn't even know if I was healing myself or not. I was just writing poems as an escape. After I got taken away from Child Protective Services, I was about 15 and they had us staying with our grandparents. I Googled where other poets are because I had never even like met another poet. And I was living in Longmont, Colorado. And what showed up was something called Freedom of Speech. But it was in Denver the big city, and I barely knew how to drive. My Luckily, my grandparents went to bed early sometimes. I don't know if they went to bed early or if they just weren't in town, but I know it was dark outside, and I took my grandma's vehicle and drove it to the city and had no idea how to parallel park. So I turned the flashers on and ran in to this beautifully painted coffee shop and asked them where the poetry was. And they said in the basement. And I ran down in the basement covered in sweat, out of breath, and I saw Lady Speech there glowing with hookah smoke behind her. I was so afraid I didn't make the list. And I asked her, um, if I could still go on, if I was too late for the show. And she smoked the hookah and lightly said, artists are always late, always. You can perform. And now I'm with Lady Speech and I'm so fucking excited and thankful. And I wish I could squeeze you right now. I wish I could squeeze you too. 
Can you introduce yourself? Yes, I can. Um, I am Lady Speech Sankofa. I am a hood witch, a hood healer. I am a dominatrix. I'm a motivational coach. Um, I am an artivist. I am an activist. I am an artist. I am an MC. Um, I am a high priestess. Um, I am a voodoo priestess in training. I um, am a sex positive educator. Uh, I'm a fat positive warrior um, and a cosmic being that's been around for quite a while. <laughs> yes, I love it. See, one of the things you, you've taught me a lot of shit, but one of the things I feel so lucky that you taught me is you bless your people, the people you fuck with or other artists, not based on hierarchy or who's the best artist or whatever. I felt like when you hosted this poetry open mic, you would do it with such grace and hold such space for the people who needed to heal. But I would watch you heal them through how you introduced them. And if you fucked with them, you would listen to their poetry or you would read their energy and you would pick up on what they were going through what they needed to hear. And sometimes it was a little bit of tough love too. I remember, I think I came to freedom of speech a little drunk, maybe more than once, <laughs> a little hurting. And I remember you like introduced me, but you also were like, hey, look at me. Let's work on this shit right here. But I would watch you do it with so many people. At one point, I remember a woman got completely naked and was going through, I believe, cancer treatments and did her poem physically naked and emotionally naked and walked through the whole basement bare. I don't know how you held so much energetic space for an entire city. You know, I'm going to be super honest with you. Freedom of speech. Um, I don't operate. I don't operate in savior mentality or in, in or in savior energy. Everything I do is uh, because I need it, um, or it's because I need it, or I need it. I need saving. I need help. Um, and I am blessed and fortunate enough to be able to make medicine for myself and have that spill over and be medicine for other people as well. Um, freedom of speech was created because I needed my own life saved. I had been a poet in the community for years and I had noticed that there was lack of safe space where people could just come as is. Um, we were in the thick of, you know, slam and slam culture and slam poetry and all this stuff. And I loved it. I love that world, but also it's a very, um, showman's world. And I love showmanship. I love the show. I love performance. I love glitter and rehearsal and putting on a production. I love all of those things. But also the base of art is so raw. The base of all art is, is raw truth. And there always needs to be a space where that can be seen, where the unpolished can shine, where, uh, where the rawness can be in all of its full beauty. I was going through a space uh, when at Freedom of Speech, I was battling with not becoming an alcoholic. I was 
uh, battling with a lot of my own trauma issues and I just needed a safe space to be. And so I, I was invited to start a poetry set by the twins who own Gypsy House Cafe, which is where uh, Freedom of Speech was located um, and born from. Their cousin um, wanted to start a poetry set and he reached out to me. So we started uh, Justice Speech. That's what it was called because he went by the name Justice and of course I am Speech. So we did that for about a month and a half and it was good, but then he left. Uh, and I was tasked with whether or not I wanted to continue that. And so I rebirthed that as freedom of speech. And I decided to continue it because I needed it. I absolutely needed a place where I could be free, where I could uh, be unpolished, where I could be raw, where I could be unfiltered and not judged. And I wanted to give that space and offer that space up to other people because I felt like if I needed that, then someone else probably needed it too. Holding that space it's still like you, that memory I totally forgot about until you brought it up until the, about the lady who uh, disrobed and was battling cancer. And it was such, it was always such an honor to be able to hold space for people's intimate healing. And it was always a surprise. I'd never, ever expected the deep healing that folks did there. I made space for it. I welcomed it and I wanted it, but I, I, I didn't expect anybody to go there, um, and they did, and they did in, they did. It was awe-inspiring. It was very humbling. I was very protective of that space uh, because people utilized it to heal. People utilized it to become. People utilized it to get free, and so it was an honor. It was always an honor. It was a lot. Holding that space was a lot, and I actually didn't realize what I was doing till Freedom of Speech ended um, in its completeness, but like, yeah, it was it was a lot, and it but it was beautiful. Every single moment of it was so fucking beautiful, and it was it was an honor. To this day, I'll take that to my grave. To be able to be safe space for people to heal, to be safe space for people to really open up and and to be able to deposit their deepest pain, to be safe space to 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 be there for people to be able to work their shit out. You know, it was an honor. It was an honor. And at moments, it was overwhelming. I definitely remember when she took off her clothes, I was in the corner like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> holy shit, guys. And I would always be praying. I would be like, I'm safe, but there could be upwards of 100 people in this building tonight. And I technically can't guarantee that they're safe. And like to this day, no, no one has ever been outed. No secrets that came out at Freedom of Speech has, hasn't gotten out. No, no one has, has gotten in trouble for their shit. No one has, no one's gotten any backlash. Like till this day, like that is the one thing I'm most proud of is that folks got loose. And to this <laughs> day that like, no one has used any of that space against anybody. No one has like, nothing bad has happened come from that. And folks got loose. So in the end, it's, you know, it's always an honor. It's always an honor. And I, those are some of the fondest memories of, of my life. Freedom of speech is, is definitely a beautiful space for me. It was such a beautiful space for me. And I'm so grateful you did that. I like what you said about you didn't come there to heal people. You came there to heal yourself. And it feels like a lot of the healing that was occurring was subconscious. At least for me, I didn't even know I was healing. I was like, oh yeah, dope poets, dope poetry, 
cool. Ooh, I'm going to take a few shots of tequila before I go. Or, ooh, I'm just going to lay back with these people and smoke hookah. It was how I built community in Denver. It's how I learned to relate to other artists. And you did this thing where you created a space where even after the poetry was over, you stayed sometimes and kind of let people hold each other, sometimes physically hold each other, sometimes with music. I still have this old, this was like before we were taking videos on phones. Mm -hmm. And I have this little shitty video of people jamming after free to speech. And you're talking in the corner about how you're going to start a sex. What am I trying to say? Like a brothel. Yeah, yeah, sex club, yeah. Mm-hmm. And all these people are holding you and hugging you, and we're all like have tears in our eyes and we're giggling. And it just, I still like hold that spot in my heart. Like, how did you, like, what saved your life in your darkness? And kind of what was your darkness growing up? Um, well, I'm a survivor of child rape, child molestation, um, and extreme physical abuse from my father. And my mom was addicted to a whole bunch of drugs and was a survivor of a lot of crazy things herself. So wasn't that great at parenting and wasn't that great at adulting, um, which meant that I got caught out there a lot. And so being caught out there, being a survivor, like, you know, things weren't good. Um, and I, I grew up the bulk of my childhood the, in the Jehovah Witness space. So that is definitely counterproductive to healing. It's counterproductive to um, moving on. It's counterproductive to life, basically. Being a Jehovah Witness is counterproductive to a vibrant life. And so <laughs> expression was always my way out. I always really loved um, watching videos, music videos. I always loved dancing. I always loved acting. I always loved all of that. Like theater and the stage was my first love um, and acting was my first love until I discovered I could write. And then when I discovered I could write, that it was over. That was all she wrote. And I didn't even know. No one taught me. There was a book of, let me see if I can actually find this book. But it was a very old book called, it was like this book of beloved poets that my dad had. And it was a bunch of white people and the poetry was quite dry. But like, <laughs> um, I loved it though. And I was like, this is the closest thing that I've come to. There was actually a couple of really good poems in there. I'm lying. There was a couple of really good poems in there, but the, the poems were dry. But it was the most random book that my dad had because he wasn't artistic. He wasn't artistically inclined or anything like that. So I remember I would just take this book on a regular basis and read it. And I had my favorite poems. And, you know, one day I was just like, I can do that. Like, I, no one told me. I was just like, I can do that. I know I can do that. I know I can put some words together. And so I would write. And for the first few years of my life, I would write a bunch of shit and then destroy it because um, I wasn't safe in my house. And I really um, didn't want my deep thoughts found out by my father, by my grandparents. And then at 17, I found uh, Brother Jeff's Cultural Center and Cafe. And at 17, I knew um, I was going to be leaving my home. Like I knew that I was at some point I was going to leave. I needed a support system. And so finding Brother Jeff's was was perfect for me. And Brother Jeff's was located on 28th and Welton in Denver, Colorado, in the historic uh, Five Points. And Brother Jeff's on Saturdays would have jazz. And then on Fridays would be the, it was either Friday's jazz, Saturday poetry, or Friday's poetry, Saturday jazz. I think it might have been Saturdays for poetry and Fridays was jazz night. I ended up there on a jazz night and it was amazing. 
And um, I came back the next week on the poetry night and I slowly just started doing my poetry um, and reading it there. And that is about the time that I became homeless. And so at 18, I left my house. I was kicked out of my family. And it was, well, and it was crazy the, how that happened. So I was, had been going to Brother Jeff for a while. I created a reputation, but I was still very guarded. Um, and then Brother Jeffs did a, uh, produced a show called Ego Trippin' and he asked me to be a part of it. And so I chose an original piece that I wrote to perform. And then I chose a poem that I had read by someone that I really liked. And I had come from a speech and debate background. And so, and I had a, some acting background too, but I had never let loose. Like I was good, but people had never really seen what I could do in this community. And so Ego Trippin' was the first night where I, I went off and I, I earned my, I called my own name. I earned my name, Lady Speech. And I went on that stage and people had seen me, they'd seen me rehearsing the poem. So like they knew I was going to be good, but I went the fuck left. Like I left, I left it all on stage and I rebirthed myself. And I remember it was in Cleo Parker Robinson's and I got a standing ovation. And like folks were like, holy fucking shit. Even Brother Jess was like, who the hell are you? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like literally he came up on stage and was like, I don't know who that was, but welcome. <laughs> She's wild, like that shit is great. And then um, that night I got kicked out of my family. Uh, I went, I ended up going home to my house, to my, I was living with my aunt and my aunt, um, my best friend at the time had taken me home and we were sitting in front of my house, just high off the night. Like we both did a really good job. We both kind of were seen as adults, like in the community, we were like babies in the community. And so like, they were like, that kind of gave it, that elevated us. We were feeling really good about ourselves. We were like, oh my God, we're establishing ourselves. Like we're gonna be grown ups. <laughs> we're artists. And my aunt had never encountered that part of me. And so she called my dad and was like, um, you know, like Kiana is acting, you know, different than what she usually acts. And uh, my father took that as a chance to uh, kick me out of the family. And so I, once I got kicked out of the family, all I literally had, I remember going to the homeless shelter and I had my CDs, a backpack full of clothes and uh, a bag full of my journals. That's it. And that's what I used to start my life. And um, I remember a, the, a poem that I wrote Call, it was, what did I call it? The first line was, um, my queendom is eternal. And I, and I remember that poem because that was like a blueprint. And that poem for me was, I am building an empire. I'm building my empire. I am sovereign. Uh, no one is the boss of me. I am the boss of me. I can choose my own adventure and I choose to create something amazing. And I choose to, I know the art is my calling and um, it is the safest place. It's the the safest place I've ever felt um, was in art. So I went with that and I began to build my career. You know, I worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time, but I was also very much, uh, you know, building my career as an artist. So art saved my life in all the ways. Like it definitely provided a sanctuary for me and a safety for me that, you know, I didn't have um, growing up. And it was something that is provided an income for me. It's provided uh, healing for me. It's provided a, a, a community for me. It's provided everything I have. Like every artist provided for me in every way, shape and form. So it is a, the consistent. It never leaves me. It's always, you know, it's always there. So <laughs> my queendom is internal. I love that so much. It's so real. I also don't think it's a coincidence that when you were stepping in your power as an artist, 
when you started feeling your power in the city, it's like you were blossoming into yourself. And then that's when your abusers were like, you can't be here. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's literally it. Like that was, and that was the final step for me. I had been fighting back and even moving into my aunt's house was me distancing myself from my father at the time. Um, I was 18 when I moved into her house. So yeah, like that was me distancing myself and, and coming into myself. And that night was the final form. It was the final, like, you know, she's a sovereign being and she can't be fucked with. And, you know, abusers don't like that. They don't like it when you come into your shit. So, and abusers mm. are always looking for an easy meal. Predators are right. always looking for an easy meal. It's not, they don't want to fight to consume you. And so I got to the point where um, it was going to be a fight to consume me. It was going to be a fight to, to I wasn't just going to lay down and be eaten. I wasn't going to lay down and be taken anymore. Once that happened, my father was like, yep, I don't give a fuck. Uh, you're going to die. You're going to end up on crack. I don't care. Don't ever contact us again. I expect to see your name in the news because you're worthless and all that good stuff. And I was like, oh, challenge accepted. Fuck you. <laughs> Everything you just said is so fucking poetic. I love how you said they want an easy meal. Abusers want an easy meal. Sometimes your voice still plays in my head because there was a point in my life where I felt like I had no one and like regular mental health wasn't working for me. I was scared and I played with ideas of killing myself and of not being able to go on. And every day, I think it's still a fight in ways. There's this idea of someone turns 20 and they're no longer abused child. And I remember coming to you and you would do readings for me. Those readings changed my fucking life. And you'd meet me at a coffee shop and you would have your cards. And I remember one thing you told me that has always fucking sticked with me is that Sharks smell blood in the water mm -hmm. and to very much be aware the way you operated in healing is the only way that ever like resonated with me up to that point because we were we're in Denver right so it's close to like the boulder yoga pants kumbaya bullshit and I, I couldn't vibe with that I knew that there was violence in me and I often found myself getting in really violent relationships that mirrored my past. You allowed to, you just allowed space for the darkness and the light. Like, because that's real healing. Like, I hate fake positivity. Fake positivity culture is some of the most toxic shit to exist, and it kills us. You know, right. we are a mixture of shadow and light, and like, all things shadow aren't bad. All things that are in the in the shadow aren't bad. There are unhealed things in the shadow aspect of us and there are unhealed things in the light aspect of us. And that shadow piece, when we heal it, there's so many good things in there that can that help to keep us balanced, that help to protect us. Um, that help to protect us. And like life is real. This fake positivity shit ain't some people die. Some people don't make it. Some situations don't get solved and they're fucked up. And like we have to deal with that. Like we have to deal with the reality of that situation and deal with life, you know? Yeah. Another thing you, you give so much to the fucking community constantly, but another thing like you've used as a mantra is healers need healing, healers mm -hmm. need healing. And I find myself using that as a mantra too. Like 
I'm just still still trying to heal myself. But I just think it's a constant integration. I don't think we ever reach this pinnacle of healed. I think we're constantly evolving. And through evolving, we're constantly going to have to heal. Yep. And one of the ways you're really good at teaching community how to heal, or another one of the million, is through sex. And I remember after Freedom or Speech, or maybe during, you also created the Red Room, right? Mm-hmm. It was during, yep. Yeah, and it was very sex-centered. And before that, I had never wrote a poem that was sexual. And now I fucking love sexual poems. And it helped me discover more of, like, my anatomy. Like, I learned more about my vagina by going – I got to the Red Room and you're like, yeah, it's sex thing. Do you got a sex poem? And I was like, <gasps> and I went into the, I went into the bathroom and, you wrote one and I wrote yeah. about my vagina. Yeah. Um, and I remember also that you did a very life-changing for me and the rest of the audience performance with, was it just with one person or was it few where you guys stripped down? Fuck, I don't remember the details of it completely. I think there was. I, I think remember. there was one time where it was just me, and then there was someone else. There was a performance I did with someone else that we both we were performing, and we we disrobed at the same time. Yeah, you disrobed, and you just did the most beautiful fucking like earth shattering poem. And I felt like you were singing too. Like you have a beautiful singing voice. Yeah. What did the Red Room mean to you and what did, what was that about? Uh, the Red Room was a space where um, I wanted to, ha- it was a safe space to talk about sex, to educate about sex, to um, discover about sex and to get in more in depth with sensuality and sexuality. I wanted to explore and uplift sensuality, which we, I think, I feel like as a lover, a lot of us don't understand what sensuality is. Um, and it's a, it's a component that is a part of sexuality. Also, it's not a part of sexuality. And so I wanted to really uplift sensuality. I wanted to teach a lot of people about sensuality. I wanted to have a safe space where we could candidly talk about sex. I do believe that uh, we need to be students of sex forever. Uh, we don't really have sex education in this country. In most places, we don't have sex education. It's reproductive education. No one actually teaches you how to fuck. No one teaches you how to own your body. No one teaches you how, and even as you get older, like just because what, how you fucked in your twenties is not necessarily what you're going to be doing in your forties and your fifties. Some things are going to stay the same, but aging things happen. You might become disabled. You might deal with the disease. Like you might deal with different mental health illnesses. So as we evolve as people, we need to be students of sex to enable to, to be able to Utilize the medicine in sex to just enjoy the function of sexuality, but also to heal so much of uh, what's behind sexuality. You know, uh, sexual exploitation is a key component to capitalism and to colonialism. It was a integral to the enslavement of Black people. It was the integral to the enslavement and the and, you know the extermination of a lot of Native American people. Anywhere colonialism exists, sexual exploitation uh, preceded it. Um, from raping, pillaging, raping men, women, children, raping grandmothers, like it's fucked up, you know, when we talk about the enslavement of black people, how we were uh, taken, how we, everyone was raped, like everyone, men, women, children, non-binary folks, trans folks, like grandmothers, grandfathers, like no one was uh, safe. 
And it was, so this, this trauma, we all have trauma. We all have and deep ancestral trauma that has to do with sexuality and sensuality, no matter what race you are. Uh, you, you have the, the colonizer in you, you have, you know, the colonized in you, you have, you have something, you gotta, you got a history in you that's deep. And also, you know, we need to speak about those things. We need to dissect those things. We need to unpack those things. We need to talk about those things. We need to acknowledge those things because a lot of that seeds our own, our present day behavior. In present life, not even thinking about ancestrally, one in six, and, and I believe this this is woefully, you know, wrong, uh, but one in six, what was it, one in six men in America before the 18, age of 18 is assaulted, one in three women. And so, and I believe that is an off number. I really actually think that's even, it's even worse. Um, so most of the people that you encounter are survivors and most of us aren't talking about it. So I believe in talking about sex, all of sex. I believe in talking about, you know, the, the tragic aspects of it. I believe in talking about the not cool aspects of it, uh, the fucked up aspects of it so we can heal it. I believe in talking about the pleasurable aspects of it, the fun aspects of it so we can have fun with it so that we can utilize it as medicine um so that we can you know write rewrite some of the 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 traumatic dna that's been in our bones due to sexual exploitation in our own present life or in the in our past lives that was really what um red light was for it was to be safe space for people to get free um one of my favorite moments in red light was um, a homeboy who got in, I invited, I invited everybody, but a homeboy ends up coming and he's very militant, very black dude, black man, very militant dude. And he would, in that space, he doesn't do this anymore because we he's grown a lot, but he would be very homophobic and he would also be very transphobic. And I have, a, I, my boundaries in regards to homophobia and transphobia are very strong. Um, I am pansexual, which means like I have my lovers, my loved ones are trans. I don't identify as trans. Um, I identify as gender fluid and I do identify as pansexual and queer and black and queer. And so I'm part of the community, part of the alphabet community. And so I have real strong boundaries around people's homophobia and transphobia, but I also work with folks. If you're, if you're learning and growing, I will work with you. And especially as someone who is, uh, you know, can it passes as cisgendered, it is my duty to like be on the front line in it, when it comes to checking cisgendered people around their transphobia. Um, so he's someone that I've had deep conversations with and we would, we, I would work with him because he would get it. Um, and we, it was a lot of work, but I was like, you're someone who he would make the strides. He would be frustrating as fuck for me, but also he would, he would feel me. All that to say, all that big backstory. Um, I invited a friend to be the feature one night and she did a brilliant performance that I still think about to this day where she had interact. She had just met someone who she, she liked another woman that she liked. And so they decided to document this process of liking someone and they, yeah. So they had, they recorded what they decided to do was write letters to each other for a certain amount of like for four weeks and not can like or not communicate and like do this whole artistic piece. Um, but they did communicate, but it was very limited communication. And then the performance was them like, and they had this film that was playing in the background. And then one person had drums that was backing her. And then another person, I forget what music she had. I think it was like a violin or something. And they were reading these letters and like describing like this inner these interactions it was brilliant and like to this day i think about that and get the chills and i'm like what is it worth so that fucking good that it was so good it was so so good and i remember we were all like in the audience like what the fuck <laughs> 
what the hell is going on? It was great. And then the homeboy, what the the defining moment for me was when he he was there that night with his woman. And so he at the end, he raised his hand in talking about feedback. And he was like, you know, I'm gonna admit that I've had a problem with gay people. <laughs> like, I don't get it. I haven't gotten it. He was like, I did not get it. I did not understand how you can. I did, I just did not get it. It didn't compute. But he was like, tonight, what I he was like, I get it. And he was like, it's just people. It's just people. That's it. And he was like, it blew his mind the way he was saying it. Like, I just want to cry because it literally I watched it. I watched literally watch we watched his homophobia wash away. He literally was like, What the fuck am I tripping for? These are two people who love each other, who like each other, who have the potential to love each other, who like each other. And they just really described what I feel when I was dating my wife and when I wanted to be with her and when I was dating her and what that felt like. And it's just people. And I was tripping and I apologize and I get it now. And I was like, you guys are from the Like, like I've been talking to your ass for fucking years. I've been telling you this. I've been telling you this. I've been telling you this. But it was the art when he watched it come together. I was like, and it was. It just and it they that performance was one where they just it perfectly, you know, displayed what it is like when you meet someone and you like them and the things that you go through and as you guys are building it and the possibility they just orchestrated it perfectly and it was an amazing night. And so red light was was that space, that space to educate, that space to a safe space for everybody to come. Even if you did feel fucked up, even if you had um, opinions that weren't the best, as long as you were respectful, this was a space where we could come together and learn and grow um, and discuss. Uh, So many of, there's a few of my friends who came out at red light. Like there's so many people who were like, I think I'm queer. (laughs) They would leave red light and be like, oh my God, I'm gay. (laughs) <laughs> be like welcome to the family it's okay <laughs> it's so real it's so real it feels to me like so much hate so many actions that come from hate have a lot to do with proximity and you like took that wall down and you invited him in so he got closer and could be like Oh, these are just fucking people. Yeah, That's literally. Fine. Yeah, he was like, literally, he was like, <laughs> y'all just people? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like so much of it is just proximity and people get in communities of their own hate and then they don't get closer to these other people that they're naming the enemy. But what was also, like, there was award-winning fucking art <laughs> like happening underground in that yeah and it's it's mind-blowing even just to think back on it and I feel so sometimes like I used to cry because I couldn't like do theater classes growing up or I didn't have money to do any of that in college and it's like oh my god what a fucking art education I got for paying five dollars at a place you held but I don't think we're really taught about art either and how artists create new worlds. Artists create portals for new ways of existing, for new paradigms of thought to come out of. There was a point in Denver where it felt it felt like the best place in the world to me. 
there's a lot of gentrification that's happened since yeah. freedom of speech yeah. to now. But there was a point where there was so much beautiful underground art happening. Agreed. And through that, there was so much community and spirituality coming. But it wasn't all love and light even in that. Mm -hmm. I got checked quite a few times as having privilege and being a young white person. And I needed that. And just because I had it then in my 20s, early 20s and teenage years, doesn't mean I don't still need it now, depending on. That's just like healing. As a white person, you're always going to have to integrate the privilege. But before the time of freedom of speech, I thought we were all on the same level. I thought, oh, well, I've been beaten. I've been sexually abused. So I don't have more privilege than you. And that couldn't have been more wrong, but I was so blessed to have a space that taught me that. Um, And sometimes it was like, Lacey, shut your fucking mouth. (laughs) And sometimes I needed to shut my fucking mouth. And sometimes I still do, but it's a constant internal process where there was such a wide audience. There were so many people who would come And I watched other people learn about their own white privilege just from listening to poems as well. It was fucking beautiful. It it was. And I appreciate the fact that we could hash it out. Like, I'm a strong believer that if you give people safe space, they can do a lot. Like, you really don't have to, you don't have to, like, direct a lot of shit. Humans are smart. We're intuitive as hell. Um, and really a lot of what we need, most of what a lot of us need is just safe space. If you give us a stay in safe space, we can take care of it. We can heal. We, there's a lot that we can do um, on our own. There's a lot of things that'll just come up. So having that safe space to do that hard work was important to me because I'm definitely a believer in a hard conversation. We got to have a hard fucking conversation on a regular basis. And those things can't happen unless everybody feels safe. Unless we create those spaces where we can we can get to work, you know, and we can get up under what we need to get up under. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the hard conversations and the conflict. I think there can be so much healing through conflict. Yeah, there can. The conflict and the resolution. But I think as white women, we have taught to make how we feel the priority. Yeah. So we need to feel good. And we get so caught up. And then the moment I start feeling uncomfortable or my ego starts taking the wheel, I'm like, oh, I I must not be safe because they're calling me out. Or, Or, you know, some of my vulnerability is showing. And I think there is a process as white people that we have to go through feeling shitty about this. There is a genocide happening in the country. It's going to not feel fucking great to realize that we have been the perpetrators of this. Yeah. And what was cool about freedom of speech is there was space held for me, but there was also very clear boundaries of I wasn't allowed to put that emotional weight on people of color. That taught me a lot. Now I could pay people of color for a reading or to process with me if they felt like they were safe in that position. And then by paying them, 
there was an energetic exchange. But just, and believe me, I went to black spaces and took up too much space and cried. And I'm so fucking ashamed of it now. And it like makes me sick to my stomach to know that I did that. But I learned from it. We're going to fuck up as healers. We're going to fuck up as white people. And it's a learning process every step of the way. And you got to be willing to put yourself in like, that's a, that's a big thing of that a lot of people who do, they that stops them from being a better ally to or a better accomplice to black people or to trans people or to gay people is like you have to be okay with the fact that you're gonna get fucked up that you're gonna make a big mistake yeah. and you're gonna get checked. Um, my trans folks humble me anytime that they need to, and I welcome that because I'm not here to be on some savior shit. I'm here to be an actual accomplice. I'm here to help tear down shit that affects you in a negative way. And that means that there's going to be things that I am not aware of. There's going to be things that I forget. There's going to be things that are not in my scope every day because that's not my reality. And I will need to be checked on that. I will need to, you know, and I'm going to make that mistake and being willing to still get in the mud, being willing to be like, oopsie, that was my bad. Well, I'm, I'm gonna make my men's apologize and do what we got to do um, and not being afraid to look stupid, not being afraid to look dumb, like not being afraid to look crazy, you know, like folks call me out pretty regularly and like and I welcome it and it does sting. It does sting. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like no authority. I really don't like it when motherfuckers try to tell me anything about myself. Don't shut up. I know. <laughs> I, be quiet. I know what I'm doing around. Be quiet. But, like, in the end, like, I would rather, like, I will stomp all over my ego and because the priority is to be a better person. The priority, being a better person means more to me. Being a person who um, can be held accountable means more to me. Being someone who, if I hurt you, you have the ability to come back and say, hey, you hurt me means more to me because that means ultimate safe space. You know, I'm, um, I'm the ultimate safe space if I can be checked. I'm the ultimate safe space if I can be modified, if I can, you know, if my shit can, if it's harming you and we can come to a, a space where I am not harming you anymore. Um, yeah, that means more. That means way more. And a lot of people, white folks, a lot of my work around white people is that. Like, you got to get over the fear. You got to end the embarrassment. There's going to be embarrassment. So just accept it now. There's going to be craziness you just accept it now i think about how i've been to even just as a fat person i and looking at my own internal fat phobia i look at like how i treated some of my fellow fat friends in my early 20s and i'm very disgusted i'm very disgusted how i and it was in my own internalized fat phobia as a fat person i hated my fucking self so of course i treated every other fat people around me with a bias that wasn't cool um, but like, be- I've learned, you know, I've learned and I was willing to learn and I am not that person anymore, but I also keep, I always keep it up in front of me. Like I never, that's a big thing too. Is like, I don't ever distance myself away from the fact that I'm transphobic. Being transphobic is a part, a key component to this society. So I work hard to like not be that. I don't ever distance myself. Even like the same thing with, there's some white people like, well, I'm not racist that don't distance yourself. Like you, this society operates on us being who we are and it indoctrinates us with some very strong um, and very wrong in a lot of cases (laughs) ideology that's harmful to other people. We only, the the only thing to be is anti-racist. The only thing to be is like, you know, we're, we're all, we're, address that shit and own it. And when we don't distance ourselves, we can come, we can become the best people and ultimately be safe. My trans friends 
even in all of my transphobia, feel safe around me. And they're quick to let me know when they don't. Um, they're quick to let me know if and when I don't. I am not making a safe space for them. And they can only be safe around me because I maintain that I'm always consistently working on and looking at my transphobia. Because Does this make me an evil person at my heart? No, I'm not an evil person. I'm a product of my society, as we all are. And the best that I can do is just be better. Just be better. Yeah. Well said. There's a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of hate around cancel culture right now. And I feel like, but with cancel culture, it sprung out of us just being better. Yeah. And, but in some cases it does feel like it's, I don't know. What is your views on cancel culture? I don't like the current state of it. It, um, I don't like the current state of it. And I don't believe in cancel culture. I believe in accountability culture. I believe that people should right. be called out. And I believe that people should be given space and resources to learn and grow. I believe that, um, and I do, but I do believe that there every once in a while there are counsel the rapists, counsel the pedophiles. They need to be completely left away from us to do their things somewhere else. Um, do those things, but like, you know, extreme cases like that, murderers, yeah, definitely go your west over there. But like, for the most part, we don't, we are all learning and we, and we need to be held accountable and we need to be able to, to actually uh, handle business. What I don't like about council culture is it creates this space when, when we look at uh, the world of YouTube, especially because I'm, uh, you know, entering into the YouTube spaces. When we look at the world of YouTube, when folks get counseled on YouTube, they then they do their standard apologies. But oftentimes the behavior doesn't change, okay? So account, like council culture doesn't cr- create a space where people can actually grow. Fuck your old stupid ass well-worded ap- apology if you don't actually understand what you did wrong, you know? I do believe in holding people accountable and I believe council culture came out of something that was pure, that it came out of folks who have been abused and marginalized, finally calling out someone who has had a space of power, who has had a lot of privilege and who's been able to hurt people unchecked without, you know, without any consequence. Council culture came out of that. It came out of people being like, I'm tired of this person consistently abusing everybody and not like being held accountable for it. Um, but I think that in as we've gone on with council culture, it has eroded and become something that isn't as productive, that isn't as um, that isn't as productive, because when we counsel people, what happens? OK, you remove them from this community. But they're going to take their asses to another community. Or they're going to build another community, or they're going to be just as problematic other places. I'm in, I'm a, right. I'm in, I'm in a lot of anarchist village mentality. No, we got to deal with the village as what's here because in some, and I do believe that because at some point we all are going to do something that is countable. Everybody right. does something that's fucking wicked. Everybody has done something that is foul. Everybody has done something to someone. You are, you are somebody's monster. You I had a the low space in your mental health. You had a low space in your shit. You were in the thick of your trauma. You were in the thick of some craziness and you've done some crazy things. You deserve to heal and have a chance to move forward as everybody else does. And also with counterculture, like it doesn't adequately address things like 
it's never the victim's job to hold space for their oppressor or their abuser. However, abusers are people and they need to have a space where they can go to check their shit. When we cancel culture alienates folks and it doesn't put them in a position where they can go get help. It doesn't put them in a position where they can go actually address their shit at the root. It is not the job of the the person that they hurt to do that and hold space, but it is somebody's job. And council culture has made it so that right. that job doesn't exist. So what do we do? We council motherfuckers. We put them out there, but we don't we don't address the abuse. We don't address the oppression. We don't address the things. I think about Chris Brown and like how in a lot of spaces Chris Brown got counseled after what he did to Rihanna after beating her, and also that has that split his. In the one hand, he has a successful community uh, career, but on the other hand, like. He has a history of still fucked up behavior. So they canceled him. He ended up losing some money in the moment. But like root behavior wasn't addressed for a long time, if ever, which created, which made him created a space where he perpetuated abuse in different spaces. Even if he didn't end up putting his hands on women anymore, his misogyny towards darker skinned black women, towards black women in general, his, his colorism, the violent things that he has said, like, and again, he too has done some improving, but the council culture didn't create a space for him to actually go get help. It created a space where he lost some money at some point, but then also he got alienated and ostracized, which also made him double down back into this defensive mode I am who I am, and no help was created. So I agree with you in the beginning. I think council culture came from a good place. It came from a space of folks fed up. It came from a space of outing the truth. Um, but I don't think it lives in that space right now. And it kind of, you know, feeds into toxic pox positivity culture. Um, and that's fucked up to me. Like, yeah, I do think there are some people worthy of being counseled, but also like it's extreme cases. Everybody else like, let's fix it. Let's talk about it. Let's like, let's heal it so that you can actually get better. Right. And I see so many people like jump on the bandwagon of canceling someone else when they have no internal connection to why or why not that person may be a monster. And it, if we put more energy as coming to heal those people instead of casting them out, when you cast people out, you're casting out part of yourself. Not saying that you shouldn't cast out your rapist, but you know, and you like, I think you saying that actually brings up a key component that I didn't ever think about is I was raised uh, as a Jehovah Witness for a big part of my childhood. And a big part of Jehovah Witness is disfellowshipping. And I don't agree with that. And so council culture hits to me like disfellowshipping hits to Jehovah Witnesses. As a Jehovah Witness, you would, I would technically be disfellowshipped if I had been baptized. I was never baptized, so I'm considered bad association by the Jehovah Witnesses because I'm queer and do witchcraft and all that kind of shit like that and speak out about abuse and blah. Um, but when you are baptized and if you go against their laws, their moral codes, you are disfellowshipped. When you are disfellowshipped, this means that no one in the congregation can talk to you. You can show up and go, you are required to show up to the meetings and to the worship things, but you, no one can talk to you. Uh, your family can barely acknowledge you. Uh, if you if you live in the house, they want you gone. Even if you live in the house, then like basically they don't talk to you. They treat you like you are, you know, you're shunned. You basically you're shunned. I watching people just getting this fellowship when I was younger was fucked up uh, because it was this thing. Now it was it was fucked up. 
watching people be ostracized, not have access to their families, not have access to support systems. It was messed up to me. Um, watching people suffer in silence and suffer alone. You're telling me that at the height of someone's dysfunction, you're going to punish them and separate them and isolate them. That doesn't make any sense. That didn't make any sense to me. So council culture um, bothers me from that level. And I never actually put that together until now. But yeah, it bothers me from that level. And even though you might have actually done something wrong, a lot of people who get counseled do deserve to get counseled. They're fucked up. But also like that comes from something and they deserve to address that and heal that. And we deserve to address that and heal that. And when we cancel people, it also makes us less afraid to be honest about when we fuck up. You know, this is why we're so shrouded when like we yeah. fuck up, like, oh, I can't, uh, they're, they're going to totally, no, nah. I always tell people, y'all are never going to be able to counsel me. Number one, you can't counsel me because I do my work. Number two, you can't counsel me because I don't give a fuck. Number three, <laughs> you can't counsel me because I don't participate. Yeah. Like, you can't do that. If I did something wrong, then let's have a conversation and I will talk to you. Right. So you're not going to counsel me because I'm human. And the crazy thing right. is, I won't offer no excuses, but I will offer explanation because I'm human. And I always get access to my humanity, just like everybody else does. Totally. It's wild. Religion was the originators of the cancel culture. That's fucking crazy to yep. see it like that. And it's so true. Witches being burned at the stake was cancel culture. Yes, it was. Do you have any rituals or... Anything you use for self-love or bodily love that you can share with people? Um, for Before you can love yourself, I always, and especially these days, I'm really about telling people about accepting yourself first. Um, being, if you can accept yourself, then it makes it actually really a lot easier to make the jump into loving yourself. And also there's going to be days when you don't love yourself. And that's an unpopular opinion that because of, it's unpopular because of positivity culture, but it's the reality of the situation. Due to mental health, due to systematic racism, due to systematic fat phobia, due to systematic whore phobia, due, due to a lot of things, due to a lot of things, this world works against us. Due to capitalism itself, capitalism actually works on you hating yourself. Uh, the more you hate yourself, the more shit you fucking buy to um, appease your inadequacies, okay? So really working on, first off, accepting yourself. Um, because then on the days when you don't love yourself, you'll still end up in a good space when you accept yourself, when you can, you can still end up in a not bad space when you accept yourself. Um, and then first it's connection, um, really connection. It's about really beginning to connect with your body, connecting with the physical form and, um, doing that in, in innocuous ways, doing it in direct ways, doing it in indir indirect ways, doing it in non-sexual ways, but really focusing in on connecting in and being inside of your body, connecting to, uh, you know, your, the, your, your flesh, connecting to your skin. I do a lot of gratitude work around my body. So I have a really intense gratitude practice um, that happens every day. And a part of that is, a part of that practice is focused on like, saying thank you for my body and accepting it for where it's at and accepting it for, you know, when I gain 20 pounds, when I gain 10 pounds, if, I, if I'm going through a health issue, as I'm getting older and a limitation pops up, you know, then being able to just accept that this is where it's at. But also that gratitude practice allows me to um, pour into my body. You know, every day my body hears, it, hears me saying thank you to it, a part of my body, be it the circulatory system or my joints or my knees or my thighs. So uh, that gratitude practice really helps me to not only connect with my body, but it also helps me to pour good things into my body. Um, and it helps me to 
remember, you know, my it seeped me in my body. So I would say like any type of gratitude practice that you can, you know, that you can do on a daily is going to is going to help you, you know, um, and it's going to it's going to help you and focusing in on a lot of that self acceptance part of it. And knowing that, yeah, you're gonna have days. I have a it's a rare day when I don't love my body. It's literally a very rare day these days because I always practice I, I'm always keeping myself on practicing loving myself and accepting myself. So but there are days where I'm like, I don't like what I see in the mirror. I don't like, and it's actually not that really anymore. More so there's days where I don't like how I feel. There'll be days when I'll be like, oh, I'm so bloated. I don't like how I feel. Or I don't like how my stomach feels. Like I don't, I, but that's, even those are rare days. But even when they do happen, I just let them happen. Like I understand that this is the ebb and flow of things. And it doesn't mean I'm less than that this, their, tomorrow's going to be a new day. Um, and so it's okay if I'm not the happiest, you know, with my health right now. It's okay if I'm not the happiest with the limitations placed on my body. It's okay if I'm not happy with something, you know, as long as I know that, like, I'm still good, even if I'm unhappy with that space. So, and knowing that, like, this is going to be a lifelong journey. You're never going to get to a destination when it comes to self-love. There's not like, I made it. I'm done. <laughs> no. I always say every day battle, baby. There's going to be, as you age, there's going to be just different things. Like, I cut my hair and was like, holy shit, like, I got more gray hairs. And, like, ugh. and like it, it's, it is what it is. Like, you're going to do, it, it is what it is. Your body's going to shift. It's going to change. Like, so, it's, a, it's you got to love yourself. It is going to be a journey. So, committing to the journey and understanding that it is not a destination is going to be a, a, a big thing, too. Like, there isn't a thing, a space you reach. And, and over time, when you commit to the journey, you will have these moments where you look back I do have moments where I look back and I hated my body in my 20s. And so lately, especially because of the work I've done, I definitely every couple of months, I'll have a moment where like I'll walk by the mirror. It'll just be a particular day where I was like feeling myself. I was masturbating. I was my outfit was fucking cute. <laughs> like I was walking yeah. out. My haircut was on point. I always have these days where I just like loved on myself all day. Like, and it just was incorporated in my day. It wasn't anything special. And then I'll, it literally will take my breath away remembering shit I used to do to myself in my 20s. How I, the place times I've almost died because of weight loss supplements and things that I was doing to like damn near kill myself. Like, like I, it literally takes my breath away and being like, damn, like you really don't hate yourself. Like, so you, there are levels you do get to and you get past. Um, I don't believe I'll ever hate myself to those levels again. Like, I just can't ever see going back there. I can't ever, ever see going back to, like, having that deep disdain for my body. I can't, like, I can't. Oh, Lord. Lord, there's still a long ways to go. But also, I'm super proud of where I'm at in this bitch. And it's a daily, it's a daily battle. You're so fucking powerful. And we are so lucky that you stepped into your power that you transmuted so much of your trauma and became a brilliant fucking artist. I am so lucky for the healer you are and the fact that you could have a very big ego. <laughs> you could, you deserve it. You worked really hard. You created a lot of dope shit and you're still humble enough to sit with the people who you've taught. And I'm so grateful for that and being able to, to hear you speak today. I love you so much. Thank you. Yes. Where welcome. can people, where can people find you? Um, well, you can definitely catch me on YouTube. So uh, my YouTube is Lady Speech Sankofa. 
Um, so I will be posting regularly up on there. The website is going to be dropping in two weeks. So that'll be ladyspeech.com. That domain name is bought and all that. It's being constructed. So the ladies, Yay. so the website will be up in two weeks. You'll be able to book me for services. You'll be able to hear all my thoughts and all that kind of stuff. I am currently in a battle with Instagram. They banned my original account, Lady Speech, at 24,000 um, followers due to anti-blackness and fat phobia. So I'll be addressing that. And I'm in... Uh, the middle of fighting back to recover that account. But until then, my backup account is Lady Speech Sankofa um, at Instagram as well. So, and you'll also be able to see me on OnlyFans soon. Uh, I'm going to be giving you guys oh. some, that's right, some scantily clad <laughs> motivational yes. dominatrix things. I'll be reading some erotic yes. some erotic story time. So I'm going to have a lot of fun on there. Um, I'm going to do some nasty things on there for with myself and with y'all. So, so exciting. So the OnlyFans is up. I'm just not posting on there yet. So that's Lady Speech as well. So yeah, you and as well, you can catch me on Patreon as Lady Speech at Sankofa. So it, and Twitter. I'm everywhere. Twitter. You can hit me up on Twitter at Lady Speech as well. All right. So the so right now the, the hub is, you know, the YouTube Two weeks, it'll be the website, ladiespeech.com. And then I'm going off on all the other things until then. So I so appreciate being a guest on this podcast. You know, you are one of my favorite people. Uh, the car stories is one of my all-time favorite stories from Freedom of Speech. <laughs> like the, the first time, it was years before you told me that story. The first time I, and I think the first time you told me that story, I was hearing it with other people. And so I was like, you did <laughs> You saw a fucking car to go <laughs> and then left that bitch in the hazards in the middle of the street for a couple of hours. It's so funny. I cannot believe it. Uh, I can't believe your I, shit that you I, stole it. <laughs> no, well, no, I literally asked a stranger who was at Freedom of Speech if they could help me park my car after a certain period of time because the twins the owners of the gypsy house were like what the fuck is this car doing out <laughs> so a random stranger was kind enough to park my car for me <laughs> and was like all right do you have a license <laughs> nope yeah i'm so thankful for the many stages i've got to be in with you and witness with you we've been photographed together in our underwear when you yeah. were performing burlesque. Yes, yes. I love you performing yes. burlesque. When I was managing a strip club, mm -hmm. you were doing readings mm -hmm. there. We've been photographed there. Mm -hmm. We've been photographed together in Ferguson yeah. in 2015. Yeah. And yeah, there's just been so many stages and you've just been such a divine guiding light of light and darkness and the in-between and I just am so fucking thankful Mwah. thank you thank you this poem is called stolen thieves took from me they made this body into a grave every time they took from me desecrated this temple when they stole I was five the first time my spirit was separated from my body thief Opened my prepubescent body like it belonged to him, carefully carved his sexual abuse into my skin, pilfered my physicality into grotesque abnormality, riddled this body with the bullets of his perversion, made my body into a macrobay prison, made me pay for a child for my child rape with years of mental illness and dysfunction, broke me into pieces, shattered my self-worth, 
until all that was left was shell, all that was left was bloody hell, turned this body into cemetery, made this body the place I was to die. Conceived self-hatred in my womb against my will, took me against my will, displayed me against my will in the gallery of their depravity against my will, my father thief. Took his pleasure from my pain, thief. Took his pleasure from my spilled blood, thief. Took his pleasure from my tears, thief. All because my father loved the taste of my fear. Savored it like southern sweet tea sipped slowly. He loved to run his fist into my face to feel alive. He loved to pry the cries from my throat with his bare hands. He loved to make me suffer. He loved to watch the smile disappear into silent terror. My father used his body to ease his pain. He beat me to the rhythm of slave ships and cracked whips. He beat me to the sound of sorrow and Jim Crow. He beat me to the rhythm of his own childhood abuse and colonization, carefully carved his physical abuse into my skin. Pilfered my physicality into grotesque abnormality, riddled this body with the bullets of his perversion, made my body into gruesome prison, made me pay for every black eye, every whelp, every busted lip, every bruise, every scar with years of mental illness and dysfunction, broke me into pieces, shattered my self-worth until all that was left was shell. All that was left was, was bloody hell. Turned this body into cemetery, made this body the place I went to die, Stephen thief. I was 19, thief. Homeless shelter thief. I had nothing saved for my sanity thief. He took that from me thief. Raped me in the bathroom of a place I ran to for safety thief. He took my safety. He took my sanity. He left me with a baby. Carefully carved my rape into his skin. Pilfered my physicality into grotesque. Pregnant abnormality. Riddled this body with the bullets of his perversion. Made my body all into horrible prison. Made me pay for my rape, my violation, and my child. With years of mental illness, dysfunction, and miscarriage. Broke me into pieces. Shattered my self-worth until all that was left was shell. All that was left was bloody hell. Turned this body into cemetery. Made this body the place I went to die. But I survived. Crawled my way from the depths of hell to live again. I survived. Clawed my way through the scars and the years of pain. I survived. Fought my way through the demons and the shame and the fear. I survived. Spent years healing what was broken. I survived. Spent years replacing what had been taken. I survived. Spent years moving into this body. I survived. Became my own messiah. I thrived. And I carefully and methodically carved love into my skin. Pour healing into this physicality until I am reborn again. Riddle this body with affirmation and light. I make my body into temple. Speak myself whole. Turn my life into ceremony. Repair all that has been broken until all that is left is the goddess king I was born to be. And I make this body the place I go to live. Dear father, dearest Stephen, dear abusers, Dear America, my body was never yours to take. My body was never yours to desecrate. My body was never yours to abuse. My body was, my body is, and until the day I die, my body will always be mine.
Thank you for listening to Horror Pod, friends. If you want to book a reading with me, go to LaceyFree.com and you can book a superpower reading or a sex magic reading or a holographic healing session. If you liked this episode of Horror Pod, please like, subscribe, and leave me a review. You can find me on Instagram at LaceyIsFree Or you can hit me up at LaceyFree.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Mwah!